Good morning, church family. Good morning. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. I'm going to be talking through a, a, a sermon series starting today that we're calling Grit. And Grit is a sermon series that is geared towards helping you stay tough in a treacherous, tragic world. Life sometimes is full of struggle. And it's hard to find success sometimes in the midst of struggle. God will provide you the strength and the resources necessary not just to survive, but to thrive. And I feel like I personally know something about struggle. I was thinking as I was preparing for this sermon, you know, there, there, there are so many things in my life that I've been through um, that, that I joke around and my wife jokes around with me uh, that it feels like I just can't access emotions. You know, it's like after a while you just have gone through enough homelessness and addiction and misery and seen enough loss where it's like there's just not much there. So sometimes I feel like this big tough guy. Uh, because I can't, you know, feel very easily just because of all the stuff I've been through. But then I got to thinking about um, some special guests that I have here this morning. And man, it just punched me right in the gut. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my, uh, my mom's parents are here. And these guys... Uh, They've been they've been married for over sixty years. And there was a time in my life where I definitely wouldn't have made it without their love and support. And I was, I was thinking today, um, I was uh, a dropout in high school, and my mom's mom would log on to my um, online home schooling program, and she would do my classes for me online. <laughs> And she helped me get through, you know, high school. And while I lived with them, after I'd been in eight different treatment centers, um, they never stopped loving me. And um, they drove all the way down from Kansas today to see me lose it up here, I guess. Gosh. Give these guys a hand. Oh, I promise you, I'm as surprised as you are that I'm in tears this morning. Uh, these guys are heroes. They're what the United States of America was built on. Not kneeling in front of the flag, not having to have their name posted all over billboards. You know, they're from... Tightwad, Missouri, and Windsor, Missouri. Nobody's ever heard of those places. It's Middle America, USA. Um, 
And so I hope that this series, and I'm going to stop looking over there so that I can get it together for you guys for the next 20 minutes. Um, I'm so thankful that they're here uh, and for what they've done in my life. Um, And the Bible is full of stories of people like this. You know, just regular people who are living life and not just surviving in tough stuff, but thriving. One of these guys, as Mike and I were planning this sermon, uh, I called him up and I'm like, Mike, I've been praying over this and I've been studying God's word. And a guy who really strikes me as somebody who has grit, a guy who's got just toughness, who's been able to push through who doesn't quit, who follows God even in the middle of difficulty, is King David. You know, he's this guy who really has been through it and and didn't just survive it, but somehow found a way to thrive, to succeed in the middle of of struggle. And this is the way God works, you know, in in his family. Mike was like, man, Trent, I was was praying over this and thinking about this. That's exactly the guy that God brought to my mind too. And so we're going to be talking for the next couple of weeks about, about David, who's just this ordinary, everyday guy that was called to an extraordinary purpose and equipped for that purpose and didn't ever give up. Kind of like my nan and pop for 60 years of marriage and raising kids and then watching me through the trenches and never giving up on me. This is the stuff that heroes really are made of. People who develop toughness to survive and more than survive to thrive in a treacherous world are those kinds of people, ordinary people who aren't perfect, that are called to extraordinary purposes that God blesses in ways that allow them to thrive, to succeed in the middle of struggle. And I thought the way that I would want to start out this morning is by comparing King David to the guy who was king before him, a man named King Saul. And in each of these guys' stories, there's a lot of similarities, but where these individuals end up is completely different. And so we're going to look at the beginning of King David's life, and we're going to be comparing some of the same things that these guys have gone through together to help us understand how to find success in the middle of struggle. And so I want to talk to you about each of these, each of these kings, and I'm going to give you four things that I feel like, if you will remember, will help you succeed in the time of struggle. And like I said, I really feel like I'm an authority on this. Personally, I've been through lots of struggle. Professionally, I get to walk with people every single day through seasons of what I would consider the most intense Difficult struggle, you, difficult struggles, plural, you can face in life. And, and if you can dream it up, I've probably sat in a room with a, 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 an individual or a family and tried to work through it, as, as wild as your imagination can get. And these are four things that I believe will help you uh, succeed in the midst of struggle, if you keep them in mind. The first thing is this. How you start in life is not ever as important as how you finish in life. How you start in life is not ever as important as how you finish in life. You can meet a gal from Tightwad, Missouri, from the middle of nowhere, 
right? You can get married and move to the middle of nowhere in Kansas. And you can have an awesome marriage for 60 years and raise three great kids and have a lot of grandkids. One of those grandkids, just an an exceptional peak performer with all this talent, Uh, right? So it took a couple of generations, but finally you guys got a good one in the mix. Uh, how you, and that good one is my youngest brother. He's in medical school right now. <laughs> how you start isn't nearly as important as how you finish. Let me show you why. In each of these guys' stories, they both start their journey to their exceptional calling with the power of God in their lives. Let me, let me give you a text here from 1 Samuel. This is what's happening in Saul's life at the start of his calling and equipping to be king in Israel. The Bible says this in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 10. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a, preset, a procession of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. That's his equipping for his calling. God's Spirit powerfully came on Saul, and Saul joined in their prophesying. In verse 11, the Bible says, When all those who had formerly known Saul saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Saul started on the right track. Saul was connected with God. He experienced God's anointing. He was surrendering and deferring to that anointing. He understood the importance of following God's leadership. He started off on the right foot. And if we keep reading the scriptures forward, we see that Saul doesn't stay on the right foot. Okay? I want to, get this, I want to give you this next test to show you how Saul finishes here. What does it look like at the end of Saul's journey? I've got 1 Samuel 28, verses 7 through 8 on the screen for you. And for those of you watching online, if you've got a pen, and I want you to have a pen handy because I'm going to conclude by giving you a, a couple of really important points that I want you to write down. But if you've got a pen handy, also write down 1 Samuel chapter 22. So I had to choose for the sake of time what to put on the screen. But in 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul puts priests of God to death because they had sided with David, the man who will be king after Saul. So he puts the priests of God to death, and in this part of Scripture, he consults a witch, a medium, to give him some spiritual advice rather than seeking God's counsel. So the Bible says this, Saul said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may inquire of her. His attendant said, there's one in indoor. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman, consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one that I name. Really bad preacher joke. This lady was a relatively unknown witch from a place at indoor who ends up going on the run in First Samuel. So there's a point in her time where she's a small, meaning relatively unknown, medium, meaning which, at large. She's a small, medium, at large. You guys know me. It doesn't get better than that. So you you need to let down your pride wall and allow that to be funny to you. 
So at this point, Saul is doing on the outside what's really happening on his inside. He's disguising himself from God. He's trying to hide from God because he knows the way he started was not the way that he finished. He began his journey in his high calling, being equipped for the purposes that God had called him to, and being prepared to accomplish those purposes. Did Saul uh, face some adversity? Absolutely, yes. Just like every person under the sun faces adversity, Saul faced that adversity. In the face of his adversity, he didn't stay committed. And if, if you lose your sense of commitment to God over time, you're going to finish poorly even if you start well. Let's look at how King David started. All right? uh, one of the first things that happens after David is called and equipped for his future position as king is he goes to bring his brothers uh, some food and check in on them as they're standing against the armies of the Philistines. And there's this big, huge Philistine named Goliath. And he's the most powerful warrior in the Philistine army. And he is mocking the armies of God. And here's this little shepherd boy named David who goes eventually to fight the the warrior Goliath. And David says to him, after Goliath taunts David, he says to Goliath, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. There's anointing here. There's power here. There's equipping here. David starts his journey on the right foot and in the right frame of mind. He's ready to do what God has called him to do, even if it seems difficult. You'll recall Saul was prophesying in power. seemed so different after God's Spirit came upon him that people were amazed at this guy that they thought they knew who was now doing these great big things. Each of them starts in the same place. They're ready, they're empowered, and they're on purpose. Let's look how David finishes. If we go to, this is 1 Kings, so the stories span a lot of scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, David knows he's going to pass away. And he has a son named Solomon. And Solomon comes to his bedside as he's kind of in the twilight of his life, right before he passes. And David gets to speak what's on his heart to his son. And David says this to Solomon, I am about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong and act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations. As written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor in Israel. David ends his life leaving a legacy worth inheriting. And it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of material possessions he's accumulated. Saul ends his life in misery brokenness and disguise each of these guys started equipped called to the same purpose empowered by the same spirit but they didn't follow the same track some of you this morning have been assuming how you started will be how you also finish if you started poorly 
then this first point is great news for you. If you began your journey in Christ or in recovery or in your marriage or in your personal life poorly, there's always opportunity to transform and finish stronger than you started. For those of you who started well, this first point is a word of caution. It's to keep going. It's to stay committed. It's to not give up in the middle of the difficulty that you face in life. The New Testament uses the the imagery of running a race really consistently. The Apostle Paul, in particular, seemed to understand this metaphor. He's telling a young man he's trying to prepare for the ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I don't have this on screen, but if you've got a pen handy, uh, you can write this down. He tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Life truly is a marathon, not a sprint. And if that's true, then to an extent, time is on your side. Every day you're given is a new opportunity to change the end result of your life. I was uh, training a couple of years ago for a triathlon and felt really equipped to get started and show up on race day. And man, I was excited And one thing that they did for all the racers, which at first I thought was cool, is they wrote their uh, ages on the back of their calf. So I had my number on my shirt, you know, pinned on, but my age was written on the back of my calf. And so I started really ambitiously, if you get my drift. And by the time the bike finished, which it was a 56-mile bike after a swim... Uh, and it was a miserable bike ride because it was as one of the windiest days I can ever remember. So I finished the bike, and I, out of like 250 people, I was in like the top 60 or 70, which was ridiculous for my first half Ironman. So let me get off the bike, and my least favorite part of the race was starting, and that was the half marathon run. And at the time, it was about 225 pounds. And, you know, I was looking around at the beginning of the race like, yeah, I got these guys. And I got all this muscle mass it's going to carry me through about a half of a half of a half of a mile into the run i thought man this weight is going to kill me man this is the most ridiculous thing why did i do this so i kid you not i get six miles into the run i've never had this happen to me before because i'm one of the most stubborn people on the planet which incidentally stubbornness is a quality of gritty people right so it's not always bad So six miles in, I hit the biggest wall you can possibly imagine, and my legs completely cramped. My my whole legs just totally cramped up. And so, and I'll deny this, and I'm going to try to erase this video after the after the sermon today. But I was running like this because my calves were the only part of my body that was not locked up in a cramp. So after being at first probably quarter of the pack and hitting the wall in the sixth mile with seven more miles to go, people just start flying by me. I'm not talking about jogging by me. I'm talking about flying by me. And here was what was really degrading to me is on the back of everyone's calf that passed me was their age written down. And so the first wave of people to pass me just happened to be almost all in their 40s. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm 31 at the time. Not that big of a deal. Then here came somebody 52. One guy passed me 67 years old. 
And as he passed me, he's like, come on, bud, you're almost there. And I'm going, no. No, you didn't. No, you did not just encourage me. I don't, I don't receive that. I don't receive that in the name of Jesus. You know, I fin- I, I, it took me a lot, a lot longer to finish the race than I had imagined before I started. And it required a lot more effort than I, than I was really prepared for, but I did finish the race. And that really is how it seems to work in life. It's not in how fast you begin. It's whether or not you can get to the end. So when you start, make sure you keep the end in your mind. After looking at Saul's life and David's life, I hope you'll be encouraged to not get discouraged regardless of wherever you're at on that race track. The second thing I want to say to you is that it's not what matters. What matters most is not what's on the outside, but what God is doing on the inside. What matters most in life is not what's on the outside, but what God is doing on the inside. Let me give you a couple of examples here from the life of Saul and David. These guys are really each similar in this. On the front end, they had a lot of self-doubt. In 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 21, after Saul is being called by the prophet Samuel to be a king, Saul tells Samuel, but am I not a Benjamite, which was one of the tribes in Israel, and is not the tribe of Benjamin one of the smallest tribes in Israel, and is not my clan the least of all clans in the tribe of Benjamin? And then to Samuel he's saying, Why are you saying to me that I'm going to become a king? So, so everything that Saul was, was looking at was the wrong stuff. He was looking at the nation of Israel and assessing which tribe was the smallest in the nation. And then he was looking at his specific tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And, and, and he was looking at individual clans within the tribe. And each time he measures himself... By what's on the outside, he comes up short. If we go to 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, God tells Samuel, as Samuel's kind of looking at the sons of a man named Jesse, which was David's father, as Samuel's looking for the sons of a man named Jesse, God tells him, what you think, Samuel, that you're looking for is not what I'm looking for. Samuel's saying, surely it's going to be the oldest son or the most athletic son. And, and God tells Samuel something really important in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 that's a recurring theme in Scripture. The Bible says this, that the Lord says to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I believe David would have done the same thing that Saul had done if he was the same age Saul was when Samuel tells Saul about his calling to be king. David would have been going, but wait a second, my family are just simple shepherds. And of my whole family, I'm the youngest, most overlooked, least respected person in my family. Each of these guys, when they measured themselves by external things, they came up short. And in churches, I think somehow we, we reinforce this idea of needing to compare ourselves to others. Because we teach there is a right way to do things, 
When we fail at doing things the right way, what's the easiest way to deal with that? It's to compare myself to somebody else. And if they're doing the wrong things worse than I am or not doing the right things quite as good as I am, it makes me feel better. So lots of people, and I haven't done a study over this, but I feel like almost 100% of the people I speak with day in and day out are guilty of comparing themselves to others. And the way the enemy works in our lives is that whenever you make a comparison between yourself and somebody else, his intent is to deceive you so that you come up short. His intent is to make you feel less than. His intent is to make you feel insignificant. His intent is to make you feel not quite equipped to accomplish the race that God has set before you. His intent is to defeat you so that you feel like in the midst of your struggle, you can't be successful. That's the way our, our situation works. So God's intent is to tell you this morning that it's not what matters most that's what's on the outside. What matters most is, the, is what God is doing on the inside. So stop underestimating the God who is at work within you. And the second thing I want to say about that is it doesn't matter how in awe people are of you. It matters how in awe you are of what God is doing in you. I get to talk to some people who have had some of the most painful failures ever in life. And this is something unique about what I get to do as a preacher and a counselor. People who at one point in time had everything that money could buy, you know, who could tithe more than most of us make, and who had gone through seasons of really significant difficulty. And when I talk to these people, they just carry this burden around with them. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you've got more wisdom and value now because of the battles that you fought than you did when the world would have said you were the most valuable and the wisest because of your success. But I want those individuals who feel beat up by life to become in awe, to, to feel awe again for what God is doing in their lives and to stop underestimating their worth in the kingdom of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, this isn't, on, your, this isn't on, on the slides, but I do want you to write it down. The word of God is active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And the thoughts and attitudes of your heart are what matter most in God's sight. We can overstate what I'm trying to say and lift people up. I think at some points in time, people need to be made a little bit humble. So this next thing I want to say kind of, kind of points to that. And I, and I feel like a way to, to stay successful in the midst of struggle is to remember that the most important op opinion about you is God's. So don't believe the hype. I was just talking about the hearsay which are the rumors, the bad stuff, the lies that the enemy has led you to believe about you or, or the comparisons that you feel like you've made about yourself where you don't measure up. That's the hearsay. That's the junk. But you also shouldn't believe the hype. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, the, the first two verses in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we get a little bit different narrative about this guy named Saul. The Bible says there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, 
the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul. Saul was a handsome as a, 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 as a handsome of a young man as could be found anywhere in all of Israel, and he was a head taller than everybody else. That was the hype. This guy's athletic. This guy's handsome. This guy's got it going on. He's voted most likely to prosper by his high school graduating class. All the girls want to be with him and all the guys want to be him. And you know those kind of guys. And so do I. The hype about them just seems to outlive who they really are. And normally it does, doesn't it? David had some of the same things said about him just a few chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 12. The Bible says... So David, Samuel sent for David and had him brought in. He was, listen to this, glowing with health. This is NIV. Uh, some, some translations say he had this beautiful red hair. If you're real old school and you got the King James, it would say he's ruddy, which is actually a compliment, right? Uh, he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance with handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Scripture also teaches against believing the hype. We've already talked about not believing the hearsay, but believing the hype about yourself. Here's the truth. You're never as good as you think you are. And God is always better than you believe him to be. You're never as good as you think you are. And God's always better Then you believe him to be. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 says this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The way some of us act in our marriages or in our careers or as individuals is like our armpits don't stink. And they do. I promise you that. And if they don't, it's because you're not working hard enough. Can I get an amen, somebody? Somebody been watching one of y'all who thinks yours don't stink and thinking if you were working as hard as me, yours would. There was a there's a show that I watched on on Netflix, and I know I got some of you Netflix junkies out there too, called Last Chance University. And Last Chance University is this university in East Mississippi. It's Scuba, Mississippi. And it's about this coach who recruits the players that are kicked off the best teams in the nation because of behavioral issues. He goes to these guys, he says, come to my university, we'll give you one last chance to develop yourself and try to get back into a Division I school again with a full-ride scholarship. And so these players from all over the country, they go play in East Mississippi Community College in Scuba, Mississippi, a town of like 600 people. And these guys have won like five of the last uh, seven national JUCO Uh, championships and the documentary follows this coach around and I I like the documentary the coach is one of the most vulgar guys I have ever seen or witnessed okay so if you watch it just make sure it's kids are not around and you're prayed up and anointed your tv in the room that you're watching it in to keep the enemy out because this guy is profane So in the first season, it's as profane and vulgar and nasty as it can be. And then the guy gets to watch a video of himself and see how he acts. In the second season, he says maybe five curse words and each time apologizes to his players because he let one slip. 
He was living way too high on his high horse as the winningest JUCO coach active in junior colleges across the United States. He needed a little humility, and watching himself on video helped him to get it. What would the video of your life compel you to think about your own self? And if there are changes you got to make, my prayer is you'll make those changes. The last thing I want to say, and then we're going to wrap. I'm pressed for time, I know. Your talent is never the best predictor of your success. I've been around all kinds of different people. Uh, I think a lot about my high, my high school. I was a dropout. My nan finished high school for me, you know, and been in eight different treatment centers while I was in high school. So... If you had to assume the person least likely to do anything in life in my uh, graduating class, which I didn't even graduate, right? Uh, My nan technically did, and I stood in her place and got to write my name on the diploma. But if you had to guess which person, I'm serious about this, probably a thousand people in my graduating class should have graduated in 2003. I bet you a lot of the teachers would have said probably Trent or one of these two other guys that was suspended a lot or kicked out or chronic detention or skipping class. I mean, you name it, I did it in high school. And probably some things you couldn't even think to name, I also did. And some of the most talented people haven't been successful, whereas I do feel like, to an extent, I have. But your talent isn't the best predictor of your success. Your level of surrender is. And I think that's the thing that's different about me than than about most people. I don't have any... Um, illusions about what happens in my life when Trent takes control. And I think people who haven't been as down in the dumps and as low and as miserable as I have still have some fleeting feeling that perhaps them being in control of their own life isn't as bad as some preacher has really tried to make it out to be. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. The first one I want to read to you is 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 11 through 12. The Bible says this, Samuel is talking to Saul. He's made a a huge mistake. He has sacrificed to the Lord, which is something only priests are commanded to do. And it's, it's a grievous sin. And Samuel says, Saul, what have you done? And Saul replied, because his men were standing in battle against the Philistines. He says, when I saw that my men were scattering and you, Samuel, didn't come to me, at the time we had scheduled, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash against us, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer this burnt offering. Let me give you the ABCs of failure. I want you to write this down. Arrogance, blaming, compulsion, doubt, and excuses. I'm going to go through those really quickly. The first thing we see here in this text from 1 Samuel chapter 13 is Saul's arrogance. He feels like he's entitled to do whatever is required to get God to intervene, regardless of what God has spoken to him or to his people in times past. Arrogance, the first step towards failure in your life and in mine. The second thing we see here is Saul's blaming. It's not Saul's fault that he offered the sacrifice to God. It's Samuel's because Samuel was late. Samuel, we had an appointed time set, and you didn't make it here on time. And I saw these guys, and I 
felt these feelings. And so because you weren't here on time, I went ahead and offered the sacrifice. God, because this certain thing you've asked me to do is difficult, I went ahead and and done something different. Too many times in our lives we're blaming others for our own mistakes. That's exactly what Saul's doing here. The third thing he mentions, A, for arrogance, B, for blaming, C, for compulsion. Saul has kept parts of his life hidden long enough that those parts are powerful enough to compel him to do things he knows he shouldn't do. Saul's kept parts of his life hidden long enough so that those parts of his life are powerful enough to compel him to do things he shouldn't do. Verse 12, that's exactly what he says. I hadn't sought the Lord's favor. Then he uses this C word. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. I promise you that's the same side of him that felt compelled to put the priests of God at Nob in 1 Samuel 22 to death. It's the same side of him in 1 Samuel 28 that compels him to seek out the medium, the witch in Endor. There is a part of his life that he's kept hidden. And as he keeps it hidden, it grows in power. And as it grows in power... Sorry about that. It compels him. Let me switch to this mic. Test. Calling an audible there, guys. As he grow, as that side that he keeps in grows in power, it can influence him to do things he would never otherwise do. That's compulsion. ABC. The next thing is doubt. He doubts whether or not God's really going to show up the way God promised him he would show up. God's told him that he's equipped to be king. He's standing at a major test. The armies that he's fighting against are starting to assemble against him. He's waiting for God's man to come bless. He doubts whether or not God is really going to bless and if God's man is going to follow through. What we have to remember is no matter what odds are against us and how long the Lord tarries, he's always going to show up at the right time. Saul lets his doubt ultimately lead to excuses. I was scared. I hadn't offered a sacrifice to gain the Lord's favor. My armies were starting to scatter. Their armies were starting to assemble. Listen, listen to me, friends. Everybody's got great reasons for why they misbehave. And Saul's got some real good ones. And it never justifies misbehavior, ever. Arrogance, blaming, compulsion, doubt, and excuses. Last thing I want to say, and I'm going to end here. While Saul's response was those things, which are the ABCs of failure, David's response was the opposite. I call it the coach of success, C-O-A-C-H. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13. David sinned. He killed a man, slept with his wife. They had a child. Nathan, a prophet of God, comes to tell David how displeased God is with what David has done. After Nathan confronts David, uh, David says to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. There's no arrogance. There's no blaming. There's no compulsion. There's no doubt. And there's no excuses. The coach of success is this. The first thing, the letter C, is confession. The quickest way to succeed, regardless of your situation, is to confess and admit the mistakes that you've made or the sins that you've committed. The second thing is to take ownership. C for confession. O for ownership. You have to own your responsibilities, both your successes and your failures, your shortcomings and the times where you felt equipped to succeed. you got to own it. You can't run from it. You can't pass it off to somebody else, and you can't hide it. C for confession, O for ownership, AC for acceptance. 
If you keep reading the story in 2 Samuel 12, the son that David has as a result of his sin with Bathsheba passes away. Afterwards, David grieved up to the point the son passed away. And afterwards, he goes to God's house and worships the Lord, saying, My son won't come back down here to see me, but someday I will go to be with him. He accepted responsibility for his sinful behavior and also accepted the consequences that were a result. That's what we have to do. The bad things that we do in life and the consequences that follow are not intended by God for us to lose heart and to fall off by the wayside. God intends to use those consequences to grow and develop us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And we have to learn to accept those and come to terms with them. If we can do that, we'll have success in the midst of struggle. Last thing I want to say is humility. C for confession, O for ownership, A, C for acceptance, and last thing for humility. I work with hundreds of people all year, every year, every year. Some of them are the same, some of them are different. The most important ingredient in personal transformation is humility. You show me somebody who stays humble and I'll show you someone who stays transformed. I got a wrap, but I want to ask anybody under the sound of my voice who's in the midst of struggle, and I know there are plenty of you right here, to get humble this morning. We're the same, man. You guys have the same stuff that I do that everybody does. The difference in us is which people are going to get humble and really surrender and which people are not going to stay seated. If you've got a need or you're struggling in life, as I close with a prayer and while we stand and sing, I invite you to come forward. Let's bow together. Lord, we love you. Thanks for your word. Thanks for teaching us how to succeed in times of struggle through two lives that are really in the middle of that battle. And we get to see it clearly. Help us. Learn from their mistakes and not our own. I ask that any people, any person who is here that needs to hear from you, to be touched by you, to be led by you, that they would be moved this morning to come forward. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me.